To unlock new experiences, you have to go past the parking lot, past the ranger station, past the places you know. Our national parks are our national treasure. Places ancient, epic, and wild. Where moments are simple and friendships come alive. To celebrate the centennial of our national parks, our team at REI wants to help you to go deeper and explore our nation's most inspiring places. REI, a life outdoors, is a life well lived. You're listening to the Jerpack Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Patagonia, Kuat Racks, and Fireside Provisions. I lay the blame for basically everything that's happened in this project to the feet of my friend Pete McBride. It was he who came up with the totally harebrained scheme. This is writer Kevin Fedarko. Pete, he was passing through Flagstaff, which is where I lived, and he asked me to go on a mountain bike ride with him, which I didn't particularly want to do because I enjoy spending my time on the couch watching videos. And so he drags me out on this mountain bike ride through the forest, and in the middle of the ride, turns to me and says, hey, I've got this idea. I want to walk through the Grand Canyon from one end to the other on foot with a backpack. I want to do it for National Geographic, and I want you to come with me. The Grand Canyon, the seventh natural wonder of the world, arguably the most iconic national park. It now faces unprecedented threats literally from all directions. To the east, developers have proposed a gondola that will transport up to 10,000 people a day from the rim down to the confluence of the Colorado and the Little Colorado River. To put that in perspective, a total of 26,000 people float down the river in an entire year. The tram would surpass that number in three days. To the south, there's a push to expand the village at Tusayan, the gateway to the Grand Canyon, and it could be in a way that would overwhelm the infrastructure of the park. To the west, there's an unregulated number of sightseeing helicopters out of Vegas. Pete once counted 363 in 12 hours, and that destroys the precious silence below the rim and sets a disturbing precedent. And always there remains the looming threat of uranium mining and mixed opinions on its long-term consequences to the landscape. What's so critical, in my opinion, is that what happens in Grand Canyon serves as a template for what happens in other places we're trying to protect around the world. This is photographer Pete McBride. And so I thought that hiking it might get some people to be like, who are these knuckleheads? What are they doing? Like, why would people go do this? And then they'd be like, oh, I didn't know Grand Canyon was actually going to get developed. I also very naively thought that it would be a long beautiful walk with some hard moments and some luxurious moments by the river and how wrong I was. We tried to impart some experience on them before the hike started, but it never really works very well. It's not just Pete and Kevin. It's any time I've tried this before. This is Pete's friend, Rich Rudo. Over the course of the past 25 years, Rich has spent close to 900 days hiking beneath the rim of the canyon. You don't know what you don't know, and they really didn't appreciate how challenging this was going to be. Kevin, Pete, and Rich, each of them have dedicated the better part of a lifetime developing a unique skill. For Kevin Fedarko, that skill is writing, and specifically writing the stories of the Grand Canyon. For Peter McBride, it's photography and filmmaking, 
quite a bit of it focused on the Colorado River. Trudeau, it's a particular array of skills required to hike in the one-of-a-kind landscape that exists between the Colorado River and the rim of the Grand Canyon. Fort Milepost, our series about the intersection between our national parks and the people who move through them, we bring you a story about a journey to rally people to protect one of the most precious landscapes in this country. A project so big, so complicated, and so important that it required all of their cumulative years of experience to pull it off. And because of that, it's also a story about friendship, about how when you bring people together for a critical common goal, sometimes you wind up with something greater than the sum of its parts. I'm Fitz Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. What did Pete do to convince me? I mean, he basically lied, is what he did. He just flat-out, bald-faced lied. As it happened, I was racing to complete a book at the time, and he was like, dude, do not worry about not being in shape. I know that you spent the last nine months sitting in a chair, staring at a computer screen. It's totally fine, because what we're going to do is we're going to hike our way into shape. Like, the hike itself is the thing that's going to get us into shape. All you need to do is show up for this thing. The canyon's just going to be polishing us off like little gemstones. And by the end of it, we will be these hardened, Adonis-like Grand Canyon hiker buffs. What was going through my head was, oh, God, not only is this a bad idea, but this is just the latest bad idea. Pete and I have a, a sort of a longstanding history. We undertook a whole series of assignments back in the early 2000s. These were magazine assignments, and... They all kind of conformed to the same pattern, which was that Pete would get an idea into his head, a terrible idea, and he would call me up and lay this thing out, and I would tell him that it was a terrible idea and attempt to convince him to see the wisdom of throwing the idea into the trash and moving on to something a bit more appealing or logical or easy or practical. And in the course of having that conversation, he would somehow succeed in convincing me. And off we'd go on to what would turn out to be the next journalistic debacle. There was their attempt to document the migration of the porcupine caribou herd. You would think that two guys would manage to, like, find the herd, but we managed not to. They traveled to the Republic of Georgia for a skiing magazine assignment about the amazing backcountry skiing in the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, we were marooned in a hotel for an entire week because of a massive snowstorm that basically just shut down everything in the Republic of Georgia. They traveled to the Republic of Djibouti to report a story on a drug called COT, but got deported before they could finish the assignment. We got Djiboutied from Djibouti. And then our partnership kind of concluded at Mount Everest Base Camp. This would have been, I think, in 2005, and we were nearly killed by an avalanche. And so what was going through my head was, it's going to be just like the, it's going to be combining the porcupine caribou herd, Everest Base Camp, Djibouti, and being stuck in the middle of the Caucasus Mountains all into one. Aside from the history of his partnership with Pete, Kevin had other good reasons to question the sanity of his idea. Kevin spent the better part of six years in the Grand Canyon, where he rode a poop boat and did research for the Emerald Mile, a New York Times bestselling book that documents the story of the fastest ever boat run through the heart of the Grand Canyon. Kenton Grua, 
the man at the oars and the main character in Kevin's book, also happens to be the first person to ever complete a through hike of the Grand Canyon, between the rim and the river. Kevin knew that more people had stood on the surface of the moon than had walked the entire length of the Grand Canyon. He also knew that John Wesley Powell made the first river trip through the Grand Canyon in 1869, and that the first time anyone hiked from one end of the canyon to the other was in 1977. And... If you think for a moment about that 108-year gap, those 108 years tell you something about the brokenness and complexity and difficulty and brutality of that landscape. And all of that, of course, gave me enormous pause and made me shake my head. But, you know, the problem, and, and see, Pete knew this, right? The problem was he knew that the canyon was is this kind of incredibly dangerous and seductive environment that just pulls you deeper into it. And so Pete knew that I'd already been sucked into it. He also knew that the notion of trying to move through the canyon literally following the footsteps of Kenton Grua would be just completely irresistible to me. And and Pete, you know, that was that's what Pete's good at. He's good at <laughs> salesmanship and seduction and he practiced those arts on me and I think he had me convinced by the end of that mountain bike ride that I was willing to sign on because what I would not be able to do would be to live with myself if I said no and then I had to live with the knowledge that I had passed up this opportunity to somehow complete my own metaphorical journey through an understanding of this landscape as a Grand Canyon. Their plan was to hike east to west, alternating between the north and south rims of the canyon. They would do the trek as a sectional through hike, breaking it up into segments of two weeks or less. While their journey would parallel only 277 miles of the Colorado River, their hike would require that they wind their way up and down the 6,000 vertical feet of terrain through different rock bands and around impassable side canyons. All told, their route would cover over 700 miles. As chance would have it, Pete's friend Rich and two other experienced canyon hikers planned to begin a two-month continuous thru-hike of the North Rim, right around the time Pete and Kevin wanted to start the project. The thru-hikers, he figured, could help cushion their acclimation to Grand Canyon hiking. And Pete had somehow managed to convince these guys, God knows how what he told them, to let us tag along for the first section of this trip. Pete and Kevin arranged to meet up with the thru-hikers, Rich Rudeau and his friends Chris Atwood and Dave Nally, at a campground on the rim of the canyon the night before they left for the hike. And Pete and I show up, and it's about a half an hour before dark, and so within 30 minutes, when we find ourselves in pitch blackness, the first thing we have to do is find the battery pack so that we can then see to begin cutting off the tags and unwrapping all of the other gear that Pete has had sent in. And I, could, I, I just I shudder to think right now, trying to imagine what these experienced thru-hikers must have thought as they were lying in their sleeping bags that night, listening to these two clowns peeling REI wrappers off of their, their headlamps and their butane bottles and their Patagonia shorts. I immediately looked at Dave and I said, Dave, I'm really sorry about this, man. <laughs> this is not gonna go well. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was, comical and concerning all at the same time. (laughs) 
The next morning, the team shouldered their packs and set off from Lee's Ferry. I'd like to be able to tell you that, like, within the first two or three days, Pete and I slowly succumbed to the rigors of the canyon and, and found ourselves sort of beaten down and punched in the gut. But really, that process took about four hours. It took us probably six hours to go about four miles. And I know it must sound like I'm being melodramatic here, because walking is not something that you think of as inherently brutal. But the moment that you leave Lee's Ferry, you are in a world in which there is no trail. You've got 50 pounds on your pack. It's 105 degrees. You're sweating like a pig, and you are thrashing through impenetrable thickets of brush, giant clumps of tamarisk trees. And sometimes it's so thick that all you can do is just like fling yourself and your pack into the brush to crush it just enough so that you can then stand up and then fling yourself forward again. Throw in some cactuses and some jagger bushes, scrambling and clawing your way up or down vertical cliffs. The surface of the rock is so hot that it hurts to touch. And then there are these giant fields of loose boulders. You have to actually leap. Every time you begin to lose your balance, you have to perform a dynamic and energy-draining set of full-body moves to regain your balance. I mean, it takes less than an hour to just feel utterly and totally drained and demoralized. I mean, I'm sure I was angry at Pete, but we were both mortified by the manner in which we were throwing a stick into the spokes of this this through-hiking machine. They were so fit, they were so at ease in the terrain that they're able to move probably twice as fast as we were. And they were stopping in the middle of the day so that we could sort of sit in the shade and try and recover. They were taking items from us. And so we were horrified at our inability to move with and keep up with this crew who had allowed us to tag along with them. And then I think also I just carried this the sense of responsibility on my shoulders. I felt like I was obliged to somehow just suck it up and keep putting one foot in front of the other because the larger purpose of this assignment was something that actually mattered a great deal. And it just seemed like the one thing that would be completely unacceptable would be to just fall apart. Acceptable or not, Pete and Kevin did fall apart. I could see it on their faces. They were worked. Both of them had their feet look just trashed. Gigantic silver dollar sized blisters in multiple places that had popped and were getting infected. It was it was terrible. On top of that, Pete had succumbed to a condition called hyponatremia. If dehydration means too little water, hyponatremia is the exact opposite. It means too little salt. Both can kill you. Both present in exactly the same way. I felt like I was at on Everest again. I felt like I was at 22,000 feet. I had zero energy. I would get through the cramps, and then it got bad a little after that. I started vomiting water and started getting tunnel vision and felt like I was slipping into unconsciousness. By the time we got to the fifth day, it was just we had fallen apart physically to the point where we could no longer continue. Will and ambition were overtaken by reality, and uh, we rested for a day, and then we clawed our way out of the canyon back up to the rim and drove back to Flagstaff, just dejected and defeated and with our tails between our legs. 
I was totally out of it, just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when I came out of there. But I went and did some aerial photography once I started kind of getting my senses back. I remember looking back on the canyon and saying, this is crazy. This, I was petrified of the place. I didn't want to go back in. I didn't think I could, I could handle it. It was too big. It was too daunting. And it was too hot and too dry. And it was scary. I've never, ever just abandoned an assignment. That's the one thing I can say about myself, right? And I was just seriously thinking, like, we'd reached the point where we might actually have to get on the phone when we got back to Flagstaff, call up our editors, and just say, look, we can't do this. What changed your mind? A miracle happened. Rich Trudeau and his crew they hadn't agreed to let Pete and Kevin tag along simply for the sake of generosity or because they didn't know what would probably happen. You know, I was 50 years old uh, at the time. I was going to turn 51 on the hike. And a huge part of this for me was to have this submersive experience where I could disappear from the world for two months and connect these incredibly detailed microenvironments together that we had loved to, to see over the years. And I realized as we'd been hiking through the canyon over time that there were all of these threats around the canyon that were systematically unraveling the place. And Dave and Chris and I had this conversation about whether that place would be the same in 10 years. 10 years from now, could we do the same hike again and have this incredible experience in this wild wilderness that is the vast majority of Grand Canyon today? And we were all concerned that we probably couldn't do it. That really weighed on us, and we're not storytellers. Um, I had met Pete three or four years earlier at a film festival, and uh, his photography was terrific. I had never met Kevin, but the Emerald Mile was profoundly impactful for me personally. And I knew the story of Kenton Grua. I knew the story of the speed run. You know, There wasn't anything in Kevin's book that I wasn't aware of, but it was a terrific story in the way it was put together. And, and nobody died. I mean, that's how good of a storyteller Kevin is. And if somebody's going to inspire the American public to do something to save this place, it was those two guys that really had the storytelling chops to, to pull that off. Not only did Rich want to get the two storytellers into the Grand Canyon, he wanted to get them into an area that few people ever get to experience, that few people can get to. You know, Grand Canyon is just known the world over for these gigantic landscape views that you see standing from the rim. And what people fail to appreciate is that those landscape views are really underpinned by thousands and thousands of small microenvironments that exist in the backcountry. These terrific places where water is carved limestone slots close enough that you can touch both sides. These neat little waterfalls, these pools and grottos of ferns, these incredible animals that actually are there. It's not just this giant hole in the ground. It's really a place full of infinite texture and complexity and beauty between the rim and the river. I I thought it was incredibly important that two of the best storytellers of this generation get this, this unique view of the place. 
would you have taken any anyone else who is that fresh into the canyon with you? No, no, unequivocally no. So even after Pete and Kevin abandoned the first leg of the hike, sooner than they had planned and physically destroyed, Rich felt compelled to make at least one more attempt to get the two journalists through the precious and brutal landscape. So I sent a text message to a few friends by satellite and said, hey, look, in a couple of days, get a hold of Pete and see if any of you guys could maybe come in and help them on the next leg that they want to do, which was basically to finish up the leg they were on with us. At, at that point, I really didn't know if any of these friends were, you know, going to be able to help or not. I just kind of planted the seed. The Grand Canyon has a small but very, very passionate community of people who have a connection to it. I mean, to make a long story short, basically what they did, I think, is they put their heads together and they decided that they were going to adopt us. They decided that they were going to figure out what it would take to sort of pull Pete and I through the rest of the Grand Canyon, sort of like a locomotive pulls a caboose. They gave us a day or two to recover, and then we basically got a phone call inviting us to dinner. And that marked the beginning of this intensive period of a couple of weeks of redialing and reprovisioning and preparing to go back in again. They would come over to my house, they'd empty Pete and my packs out onto the living room floor, and they'd start throwing things away. They redid our nutrition program. They took a look at our maps and the routes that we had planned out, and they redesigned them to accommodate the fact that because we're journalists, we need downtime built into our days. By the middle of November, they had completely rebuilt our entire program, and they'd also appointed members of themselves to serve as minders and to go back in with us. The manner in which we were adopted and taken under the wing of this larger community of people, that in and of itself was an expression of their commitment to and the depth of feeling that they experienced for the landscape itself. Like by taking care of us, they hoped they were taking care of the land. When they finally started hiking again and we got that text from Pete, Dave and Chris and I were cheering. We just thought it was terrific that these guys had the tenacity to come back after such a beatdown. We thought it was just terrific. The hiking community accompanied Kevin and Pete through the first few segments of the trip. By the end of winter, we had finally managed to demonstrate just enough competency that our minders, these folks who had adopted us, they were willing to allow us to go out on our own. Pete and Kevin completed two sections of the Western Grand Canyon on their own. Pete hiked the one section with consistent trails completely solo. Kevin hasn't done that one yet. By the time they made it to segment five, Richard finished his through hike and decided to circle back around to the canyon to escort them through a particularly dangerous section, the Great Thumb Mesa, a spot where years earlier a beloved member of the hiking community had fallen to her death. And you're 3,000 feet above the river, and it's very cliffy, and it's it ended up snowing about 8 to 10 inches, maybe a foot in places. And so we were walking through that in the snow, and very cold. It was reported to be minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit on the rim that night. But I felt like that was somewhat of a turning point. I realized if we could get through that and we could walk for 12 hours in a snowstorm soaking wet with frozen feet and, and miserable and and everyone still be able to find a laugh at the end of the day. 
we, we could probably get through the end. At this point, Pete and Kevin have hiked seven segments and around 650 miles. They have one more 100-mile leg to complete. They leave the weekend after we release this episode. True to form, Pete feels good about the last section. Kevin wants to make it clear that they could still crash and burn on this leg, and that even after they finish the hike, the bigger part of the journey for them still lies ahead, actually telling the story. Maybe a feature-length documentary, maybe a speaking tour, maybe another book. Even if they do finish the hike itself, they could still crash and burn. Everyone else has more confidence. They've both told great stories before. Neither of them has ever hiked 750 miles through a vertical wilderness. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a story about a long walk that serves as a a backbone for a a landscape that's loved to death and being challenged like it's never been in its 100-year history is a national park. But this also is a story of friendship. Kevin is a, um, he's a very sensitive, thoughtful individual. When he speaks, he, he's almost like a preacher on some level. He has an ability to lure you in into a story. I think he's most comfortable with a cup of coffee in, in a quiet room reading a book. And he likes to think of us as the odd couple. Uh, he's more of an introvert. I can be more of an extrovert. Pete's a photographer. He deals with light professionally, but he kind of deals with light as a person, too. He's incredibly social. He's very charismatic. He's very at ease when he moves through the world. He delights in meeting new people. I mean, he's the kind of person who likes nothing better than to find himself in a bar in some country that he's never been to, where a language is spoken that, that he doesn't know, and by the end of the evening, have the entire bar dancing. And by the way, he's a really, really good dancer. And I am the antithesis of all of those qualities. I'm a dark person. The word itself is woven into my last name. Pete deals with light. I deal with darkness. If you were to translate it into like Winnie the Pooh terms, Pete is Tigger and I'm Eeyore. Which is not entirely accurate, but there is a level that he is like Eeyore because once he puts his mind to something, which he did on this project, once he decides he's going to walk 15 miles a day with a heavy pack through the desert, he does it. And uh, he'll walk himself right into delirium. He'll walk himself right into dehydration, and he'll keep going. Whereas I'll, I'll probably start whining a lot sooner. But the great thing for us is that we have a shared passion for the place, and we have a different way of expressing and trying to document the story. So I think it works in concert. I'm trying to capture it visually, and he's trying to capture it lyrically on paper. And what I think this trip has taught me is that it's like two sides of a coin. And the challenge now involves bringing his skills and my skills together, braiding them together in a way in which what each person might be able to create by himself will be surpassed and transcended by the power of the thing that we create together. Support for Milepost comes from REI. To celebrate National Park Centennial, REI built the ultimate crowdsourced guide to the parks, 
so you can discover your new favorite trail or share your own favorite hikes and photos. To learn more, visit REI.com slash national parks. REI, a life outdoors is a life well lived. Support for the diaries also comes from the good people at Patagonia and from Fireside Provisions. Also, Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Check out their lineup of sturdy and sleek roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. Thanks, Kuat. We love you guys. Whether it's a donation, a story submission, or a note of thanks, you, our listeners, truly keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support, visit our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed this year. A huge thanks to you, Kevin Fidarko, Pete McBride, and Retrudo, for sharing your story. Pete and Kevin leave this weekend to attempt the last leg of their thru-hike. Wish them luck, and follow Pete, Kevin, and National Geographic on social media to track their journey. Visit our website for more information on the project or on the current threats to the Grand Canyon and how you can get involved to help protect it. Music today from Kai Engel, Salmo, David Mumford, Ken Christensen, Nisai23, and Bradley Carter. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. As always, you can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.